0: from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 235. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Gant Grimes. Gant, how's it going? All right, Steve. How are you doing? I am also doing well. Hey, why don't you give yourself a quick intro just so everyone knows who you are? I'm sure all of our community members are going to be well aware,
1: but a lot of people don't join the Discord. So for those people, why don't you just tell everyone what you're all about? Sure, my name is Gant Grimes. I'm a coach at Red River Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Wichita Falls, Texas, under Ben Lozano. I've been a member of the gym around a decade. I teach the 5:30 a.m. class three days a week. So, shout out to my loyal but dedicated savages in there. Been a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu a little over a year. A Judo black belt for about twelve years, and got a black belt in Japanese Jiu-Jitsu fourteen, fifteen years ago. That's Actually, been quite helpful with footwork and, and wrist locks and a few other things. Been at it all in all about thirty years. Well, exactly thirty years. Started out in kempo to the modern and full contact things and kickboxing. Took a swim through another couple striking arts and then found judo sometime in the in the late nineties. So my coaching and teaching style is is largely games based. A lot of it is is based on the, the sports I played growing up. Played and competed in a lot of different things. I've coached a lot of soccer and basketball. So very familiar with the invasion sports, and I apply a lot of those to my jujitsu teaching. And oddly enough, spent some time teaching piano and and vocal music. So there's some of those influence in there. Really, something that's important to me is is coach education. I've probably spent hundreds of hours myself in seminars and clinics learning how to be a better coach and have probably put on a, about six to eight seminars myself and and have written my own curriculum over it. So uh, something I really enjoy talking about. Nice. Similar time as me, actually.
0: So you've been in this for a while here. And hey, something that you've been talking about lately, you propose this as the the topic of the episode here. And I love this conversation. Bad marriage jujitsu. I love the name Now, you're going to have to tell me what this is all about, though, because it sounds
1: amazing. So it was for really, it's just kind of a made up topic. I've used the concept for a long time when I would teach things. And if a student couldn't remember exactly what they were supposed to be doing, just pay attention to what the other person's doing, what they want out of things, what's going to make them happy. And you just take their happiness away. And I've I've spent I am an attorney by trade. I spent some time, unfortunately, doing family law, so I just thought about some talking points to expand on this concept of bad marriage. And to, I'll make a confession, this is, it's kind of like the movie This is Spinal Tap. It's a completely made-up system. I don't use this at all. I started making some talking points on it yesterday, just for this podcast, but hopefully we can use this as an example just to coaches if they're thinking, wow, how can I do something different? This is how to do it because we're we're making this up on the fly. I love this idea. It actually touches
0: nicely on something that uh, Josh Wentworth brought up recently on the podcast, a friend of ours. He was talking about negative jujitsu and the idea of shutting down your opponent's game and building a a type of jujitsu game that's built around negation. And that's related to what I think you're talking about here. But what you're sort of proposing is more in-depth. And I think it's a helpful approach because this is such a common problem, especially for beginners. There are so many things that can happen. They often feel overwhelmed and they just don't know what to do. And I love the idea of just having some guiding principles that, hey, if you don't know what to do. At the bare minimum, you can focus on understanding what your opponent wants to do and just not letting them do that and making them miserable. <laughs> so with that said, why don't you kick this off and talk a little bit about what this means? I mean, what you've said is you want to find what makes your opponent happy and then take it away. So how do you do that? And what does that wind up looking like in
1: practice? So really, in its essence, the way you practice bad marriage, you just you don't you don't even have to know what you're doing it happens. A lot of times people are married. They're not really sure what they need to do. But it's really easy to piss the other person off. And the other person doesn't have to know what they're doing either. But if you can keep them from being happy, you're going to start making some progress.
0: Makes a lot of sense. You know, it's something that I've said before in the context of jujitsu, which is that it's a lot easier to stop your opponent from doing what they want to do than it is to enforce what you want to do and you feel this a lot when you're playing with people who are playing that negative jujitsu game where they're just simply trying to not be moved to shut down what you're doing it can be very frustrating to play against and it's a strategy that a much less experienced grappler can still employ relatively well against someone who is more experienced. You know, it might be hard to go up against someone who's way better than you and make things happen, but you can probably at least slow them down and make it hard for them to make things happen.
1: Exactly. A lot of my coaching is informed by I was a soccer coach. I'm still trying to get away from it completely, but coach on the club side for boys and girls. Done a ton of coach education courses, licensing courses, and, and that's another thing I'm always preaching about in jujitsu. We don't have any of this stuff. But anyway, being from a smaller town, when we go play clubs from larger town, you might have a club with ten teams in the age group or more, and it's just us. So we had to develop our own people, and more often than not, we're playing people who were technically better. They had better players. And they were better technically, tactically, all this stuff. But it's a team game. And one of the things that I'd always say was it doesn't matter. We're not here to see who plays the better soccer. We're see, here to, to see who can win a game. And winning the game is, if they're better than you, you've got to shut that down immediately. I don't even want to see what they can do. And, and I'll I'll hear people talk about that when they compete. Oh, I didn't get to show my jujitsu. I didn't get to show the full range of what I can do. Well, who gives a shit? You're not there to show the full range. You're there to win a a match. And that's it. And it's quite possible to beat people who are better if you can goad them into trying to showcase this stuff. And then you just shut it down immediately. You don't want to see it. You don't want to be exposed to it. You're not not there to see who has a better jujitsu. You're there to do what you want to do. And that's it. Well, something that you've said here, the first point that you put down is if we're trying to make the marriage
0: miserable, number one, we want to remove their basic needs. So I guess what you're saying here is regardless of what specifically they're trying to do, there are always going to be general things that you can take away. So maybe give some examples of that. I mean, regardless of who the opponent is, what are some of the things that you can always negate, which will always be valuable for you to do?
1: Well, I given giving props to the mental models, and I remember Being turned on to Bernanke years ago, when I I think all of us as coaches uh, go through this stuff, we're we're trying to redefine stuff or categorize things. But when I heard the alignment model, it was so so simple and so elegant and so good, you can make an entire system around just alignment. And it nearly is a, a perfect unified theory. So that's the very first thing. You don't have to know anything that you're doing. But if you think of, like, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, somebody has to feel safe, feel sh- secure, they're in shelter, look at the base posture structure. Just start chipping away at that stuff. And and that's where you start. You can, as a coach, you can gamify all of these aspects. You could spend classes upon classes and do nothing except playing games around the alignment models. And that would make you a much better player. That would be time well spent.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up. I remember when I first started judo a long time ago, I was trying to, you know, this is something very relatable to our listeners. I was trying to do techniques. So I'd have it in my head, you know, I want to do an uchimata here. And I would just be thinking from a technique standpoint and I'd just be keep trying to do it and it would never work because my opponent would just not let me do it. And I remember I was sparring with a judo black belt one time and I was asking him for advice about this. And he said, look, think less about trying to do the throw and think more about just trying to push pull me off balance all the time and that's kind of the you know in judo you call that kazushi in jiu-jitsu you call it the same but it all kind of ties into that framework of alignment where if you're not sure what move is going to be the right one to do. You're never going to go wrong. Just continually trying to off balance your opponent, pull their arms out of alignment. You try to get a grip on their head. Just keep trying to make them miserable. And eventually you do that enough. You're going to force them to make mistakes. And then it gets way
1: easier to exploit an opening and actually do the technique you wanted to do, right? I am glad you mentioned the Uchimata, Steve. This is an example of an instance where I combine that eco with some other teaching styles. Uchimata is not an easy throw. Judoka learn it early, but it doesn't look right for a few years regardless of how it's taught, right? which is usually wrong. Either the explicit instruction and drilling is wrong, or the game's address the wrong stuff. Usually in the form of trying to emphasize a leg action as being the most important part of the throw. That's not any more true for Uchimata than it is for Sumigashi. If you're just trying to teach a task with no explanation or context, it's going to take your students a lot longer to arrive at a correct Uchimata, and there's, there's no reason to do that. So, way to do it, and, and do this, and you'll figure out right off the bat. So, have your students do movement prep, positional games. They can do the head down, leg up, and warm up. Have a game about breaking people's posture over. There's probably about a, a dust. Now, when you want to really teach the Uchimata, demonstrate the mechanics of why the Uchimata works. You have your partner lean over forward to represent broken posture and physically turn his hips perpendicular to the ground. Just grab hips, turn perpendicular to the ground. One up, one down. And everybody will see the effect. What happens when hips go perpendicular is they open up, see how what it does to the plant leg, see what it does to the leg in the air. And that's why the person's going to be unbalanced. A lot of people, if if the goal is just to try to come kick this leg up It's not going to work well. So we want to add that context in there. Now you can demonstrate how to turn your partner's hips perpendicular by turning the shoulders perpendicular. You don't have to do any judo-y or or jujitsu-y stuff. Just break the person over 90 degrees and turn the shoulders perpendicular to the ground or a little bit past it. They're just going to fall over. You'll see as the shoulders turn, the spine rotates, it opens the hips. Now that your students have understand how it works and why it works, now you can gamify the stuff and your folks are going to have better context for what, for the tasks that they're trying to achieve. And that's going to help them perform those task oriented functions a lot better. So make a game to rotate the shoulders around the spine. It kind of looks like Ukiatoshi, but instead of push pull, you're going to do a hard pull against a forearm frame while backstepping can make a game to teach them how to host the legs so you can rotate their hips. These details will take care of themselves after they've seen the why. As they turn in, they they might cause a post with a proxy wedge. They might make a an actual physical mechanical wedge by contacting the hip. It doesn't really matter. You can go from there. If you notice a lot of the UK's are, are punking out and trying to sit back on their heels to resist the throw, roll in a few minutes of specific training where your your people can do uchimata to a gari or whatever other combinations you like, and that's going to really kind of hammer in that that learning for you. Explaining the why has always been a big thing for me. It may be a relic from teaching individual techniques and how they fit into team tactics, but whatever. I've just found the added context builds these mental associations a lot faster than explicit teaching only or eco-teaching only. Yeah, it's one of those examples where I think if you get too stuck
0: in the reeds of trying to do the thing technically correct, you can lose sight of what really matters, which is taking your opponent off balance, putting them out of alignment. You do that and everything becomes easier. So I I think that idea of removing their basic needs is awesome. Now, something else that you talked about, and I love the way you wrote this, principle number two here, get defensive as fuck for no reason at all, <laughs> which I, I think anyone in a bad marriage can relate to. But in the context of jiu-jitsu, what do you mean when you say get defensive specifically?
1: So this is kind of a shout out to Pre Mickelson stuff. I, I was naturally attracted to it because from judo, I'd always played turtle. And it was one of those things when I joined jiu-jitsu, oh, don't do turtle, they're going to take you back. Don't do Sayanagi. They're going to take your back. Well, bullshit. Mm-hmm. And out it years later. It there aren't poor techniques. If you do a technique poorly, then bad things can happen. But it, it's nice to see Turtle get some love and Sayanagi being employed and get some love. But what the get defensive means is for newer players, you can put them through a couple games of grilled chicken in 10, 15 minutes. And you can take somebody off the street with no jiu-jitsu experience and that person can enjoy an open mat session they may not get much accomplished but they're not going to die and once you get past the point of, of worrying about just being smashed and dying everything starts to look better because then you can think you, you can start to evaluate your options and, and see the things before you so i love to start my new folks off just with the defensive postures because you spend just a little bit of time and it's a huge return. That's where we generate a lot of our attacks from. Yeah. Yeah. That was the biggest thing for me when I started using that. And honestly, when I watch an instructional, I'll watch about 30 minutes of it, turn it off and then just go play with it for a week or so. I watched half of the first girl chicken tape. Like, Damn, why wasn't I thinking about jujitsu like this? And all the offense started working. i go to class and learn a bunch of open guard techniques, sweeps, submissions, all that, but I was never getting there. I was never making them work, even as a, a purple belt. But once I got in the grilled chicken and started playing with the other defensive postures, it's just people will overcommit and make mistakes because it's they cannot penetrate and attack those postures, keeping what they need to do alignment wise. Mm-hmm. And they get themselves into trouble. One of them, I call it the free candy turtle. It's a much more open turtle because the judo throw, like the Peterson throw, is, is makikomi, Soto komi, in judo. And when your opponent reaches over for your far armpit, everybody knows they can roll it or you can roll that person. So they, the free candy turtle is just, they look at you, you've rolled them before, they're not going to buy it, but then you open it up a little more and it just looks so tempting. And we say free candy like the, the free candy van. And what happens, They eventually they can't help themselves. They're going to reach, they're going to get in the van, and they're going to get molested. And that's <laughs> how it goes. And if it can't happen from Turtle, then we just translate the positions. You know, Preach mentioned whether it's Hawking or Running Man. We just modify that a little bit to, I want them to try to hook under that that arm Because then we can get back to turtle or panda, and then we're going to do the komi. So even when they think that they, oh, I finally have them, this person's in hawking, I'm not going to be able to do anything. Open up that armpit, make a little space for them, and they're getting in the van, and they don't even know it until it's too late.
0: Yeah. I love that, uh, that description. And as a notorious turtle player myself, I can definitely relate for those, by the way, who haven't studied Preet's material. I do definitely recommend it. He's been on the podcast with us many times. He did a premium series with us breaking down and explaining all of his positions. But basically for those who missed the memo and haven't studied Preet's defensive BJJ material, basically what he proposes is a series of new and modified existing positions that are focused on keeping you safe and defensive at all times. Now, the pushback that Preet often gets is, well, you don't see this stuff working at the highest levels, right? You know, Gordon Ryan isn't out there winning world championships by playing these positions. And I suppose to some extent that's true, but that doesn't mean that this stuff is is useless. It just means that it's a different tool for a different problem. And like you said, Gant, I think with a lot of beginners, there's this overemphasis on trying to study and what's happening at the highest levels but look if you are a white belt no matter what you're doing you're not operating at the highest levels you've got to build up to that And a good defensive foundation is one of the most important things you can have. So I I do like that idea of focusing on defense first. The way that you describe turtle too, it's interesting because I've heard Preet say the exact same thing. So if you watch a lot of his instructionals, the, the primary way he'll teach turtle is closed elbow turtle. And for those who don't know what that means, that basically means you play turtle, but instead of having your elbows on the floor, you've got them pinched in against your ribs. And by closing that gap, you're preventing your opponent from getting seat belts and hooks, which makes it hard for them to do things like back takes or or the Peterson roll. And that's all well and good, but once you get really good at turtle... You can open your turtle and intentionally open that space to try to bait your opponent into going for a back take or a seat belt or something, and that's when it opens up things like the Peterson roll, like you talked about. So I love that idea of just having a defensive base. And yes, you're right. Some people will just completely crumble if you are overly defensive. They'll start getting frustrated and making mistakes, and that's always an advantage.
1: Yes, and it's for the people who haven't studied that. That's one go you mentioned josh's episode go listen to josh's episode go listen to the preach stuff when he first kind of came online with that stuff and, and started out with a facebook group i had a few discussions with them The the too long didn't read version of all preach stuff is just win the hip crease battle I'm gonna Stick the front, my forearms into the hip crease and that's it because now whatever else they do to you now you have a little spatula under you can you can pry them out and as long as you're playing that way, and sometimes I'll just make games. I'll say, put your forearms in in your hip and see what happens. You get in turtle. You get on your side. You get in panda. You do whatever the hell. You can get in stick. It doesn't really matter. And sometimes just playing games like that, you feels like you're completely goofing off or, or disrespecting your partner. And sometimes I'll tell them, hey, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm, I'm just trying to see what happens if I try this. And you realize if you just put your forearms into your hip crease, you can play. You can play. And and the whole idea, like you mentioned, trying to generalize, to taking the top 0. .0001% of the world and trying to generalize that to the general population is just stupid. Yeah. And really, to the point that anytime I hear a coach talking about, oh, it's not going to work at the highest level, it's not going to beat Gordon. Well, name somebody who's come up with something that's beat Gordon you're just going to have athletes who are going to be transcendent for a few years and then somebody else takes their place and that's the way it is. But you know, you can, Oh gosh, well this isn't going to work against Andre. Well, does anybody have really good ideas for stuff that works against Andre? Nope. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting
0: because what you're talking about there is kind of the opposite of your first point, right? You want to remove their basic needs You want to break their alignments. And normally you do that by trying to pull one of their arms or their legs kind of free from the rest of their body. But at the same time, you want to keep defensive where you want to keep everything kind of tight and coiled to make it harder for them to do that to you. So it sort of feels like those two rules are kind of the two sides of the same coin, if I understand
1: correctly. Well, it is. And the nice thing about playing your defenses like that is you're not doing anything to threaten them. They're not going to recognize this as a threat and say, oh, we got to keep them from doing that. They should, if they were playing bad marriage jujitsu, they'd realize it's, it's better for them to try to take your happiness away, but they're not going to be threatened by you putting your forearms into your hip crease and trying to get your belly button pointed at them, which if people have a hard time understanding base, that's what I'll explain. Some get, you know, direction from where you can deliver or absorb force. Others just say, Hey, point your belly button at them. And most of the time that's going to be the correct answer that's actually a really good language cue you know we've talked to nick winkelman about finding
0: the right cues to explain things which is something that coaches you talked about this earlier coaches in other sports are very acquainted with but coaches in jiu-jitsu often try to struggle i think or often struggle with this and they can just get really, really pedantic and technical. But I love the idea of just saying point your belly button at them because that kind of usually is going to put you in the right spot and it's much easier to understand
1: for people. When Greg was on the podcast and it was great when he said that jiu-jitsu is still in the leather helmet days, other sport coaches will understand this stuff about cues because they get coach education or they learn from coaches in other sports. We jiu-jitsu folk think we're special. And well, jujitsu's bit. It's not like other sports. Bullshit. It is. It is. So so let's learn lessons from these sports that have been around. Look kind of like you do in business. Let's look at sports that are very old, are played around the world, and make billions and billions of dollars a year. Right? Soccer's already looked into this stuff. Baseball, hockey, basketball. There's lessons from football we can take all of these coaches are going to annual or semi-annual coaches conference or talking to other coaches. They're getting the best practices, and it's important to them. They're not still trying to play their own sport, which is what's happening in jiu-jitsu. All right? And I used to call it black belt player, white belt coach. I am a black belt, can now i going to teach. No, that's bullshit. I mean, I, I think in jiu-jitsu we use this as a gatekeeping function to keep people out but in 10 years if we're going to be open-minded enough some of the best jiu-jitsu teachers and coaches are going to be advanced white belts and blue belts because really if if all you've done if you're a purple or brown belt in jiu-jitsu and you're 20 years old versus you get somebody that's been an elementary school teacher for 30 years that person's going to teach an arm bar better in two weeks as soon as they figure out what the essential elements are, they'll be able to boil it down and teach that arm bar a lot better than that purple belt is going to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think you're absolutely right there. I think the dynamics movement in jiu-jitsu is an interesting one because like you said i i mean man if you look at reddit and you look at some of the people critical of ecological dynamics it really feels like people just want to argue against it and they don't even really understand what it is you know people will say things like well that approach might work in soccer but jujitsu is totally different and first of all i would follow up with your point that really it isn't that different but also i think people fail to understand what ecological dynamics means then it's not a you know, it's not a a movement. It's not like the Atkins diet, or it's a particular fad thing that you follow. It, it really just provides some guidelines for how the human body and the human brain understand and learn movement. It's not saying you have to teach a certain way, or you have to do everything exactly the same way as these other coaches do. It is just a framework of research and science that says, here is how the human brain and the human body work together to understand movement. And you can deploy that however you want, but I think rejecting it on the grounds that jiu is somehow different is a silly mistake, like you said.
1: Yeah, if you look at anybody who got good at a sport and look at what they did in their childhood, they're going to learn it in the park, on the playground, in the front yard. Johan Cruyff is a legendary soccer coach, and he said, I spent four hours a week in team trainings, but I spent every day after school playing football in the street. Where do you think I learned the game? And to ignore that, I mean, you see all these kids just learning the game and playing. that That's the key is playing. People would get the, the Gracie's crap about keep it playful. You're going to learn more when you're really just kind of screwing around and having fun and taking chances and, and laughing about stuff because sometimes you come up on some neat things. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't expect that to work, but when you stop trying to do your thing and stop being committed to this really narrow focus or or paradigm of what you think jiu-jitsu has to be, the game can really open up. And that's what eco can do. And a lot of the pushback I see against the eco movement is people who don't have any kind of history in any other sports. And that's not a criticism. But sport coaches, um, especially the invasion sport coaches, are going to see that and, and say, that makes a lot of sense. Because if you just If you go out to a grass field and you throw a ball out and there's a group of kids there, they're just going to go do something with it. Maybe they pick it up and throw it around. Maybe they start kicking it, but they're going to chase each other. Um, They're all going to try to get it. They're going to swarm around. And then after a few minutes, they're going to make their own rules. And some kind of game is going to emerge out of that with no instruction. So if we can just kind of, as coaches, our job is to try to make a good plan to where we can go and let this game happen and the best thing we can do is stay the fuck out of the way and allow the learning to happen
0: yeah now hey something else i wanted to ask here i'm just running through your your notes here and one of the things that you also talked about on the bad marriage jujitsu front is don't let them get started and i'd love to know what's meant by that when you talk about this are we talking primarily about things like grip fighting or does it go beyond that
1: well anything but grip is the very first one and I was listening to the a little bit of your podcast with Chris Payne's, who has just lost so many, many, many matches. Apparently, <laughs> to, get his, to get his nickname, but no, it's a has great stuff out there. But grips. When I got into judo, I'd already finished. I played a lot of different sports. Decided by the time I got to college, I I wasn't going to be able to be a Division one football player, so I, I switched to rugby. And I was really kind of late to judo by the time I started competing a whole lot. I mean, I was a, once I got in the brown and black belt division, judo, it's either novice or just open brown and black belts. Since it's a standing sport, there are more dynamic elements. So athleticism plays a little bit, plays a good bit larger role. So you can have people that you can be in that advanced division within about three years. Well, I was 30 years old. And I was playing kids who'd been were younger than I was and had been black belts longer than I'd even been in judo. So I needed something to equalize. And that's when I started studying grip fighting. Roddy Ferguson was a judo Olympian. He's also a three sport athlete in college, BJJ black belt, he fought in Abu Dhabi and then in strike force. I'd recommend his stuff to anybody who wants to improve their mental game or how to get better faster, but he said, I, he was talking and said, I didn't get back to Judo until late, so I had to find a technique that really worked for me and find a way to shut this down. And, and grip fighting does more to just shut stuff down than anything else. Grip fighting is the most underutilized thing in Jiu-Jitsu because that's the first thing you're going to do is, is connect with somebody. And grip fighting isn't about just how you connect, it's how you disconnect or you keep them from connecting or disconnecting. And when I'd go against these people who were a lot better than I was, if you could out-rip them, you feel just this blanket of security just wash over you. Like, man, I've got the grip I want. I'm not going to lose. I may not win, but I'm not going to lose because I've taken away the elements that he needs to get Kazushi and execute a throw on me. And, and that's where... Negative judo can come into play. Negative judo is, is just you're going to make the other person start to accrue penalty, penalty, stalling penalties, false attacks, things like that. But if you can outgrip somebody, you can play. You can play with anybody. You may not win, but they're not going to kill you. And, and that's something that, for new folks, learn some of the defensive postures and learn to really understand the gripping game. And that's going to bring them up to the level very quickly. Something that I've always said here on the podcast
0: is that grips dictate position. Normally, if you look at when positional advancements happen, they happen when someone gets a good dominant grip and then they can execute that advancement. It is very hard. And in fact, it's normally a bad idea to try to advance position. If you don't have those dominant grips, you see this with white belts a lot where they'll, they'll get very excited about the possibility of a guard pass, but they're totally tied up in someone's spider guard or something, but they'll still try to pass anyway. And what happens is they get swept or submitted. It's a very common mistake for people, especially in the beginning stages of jujitsu to ignore the grip fight. And my advice to most people, if they're getting stuck or tied up or things aren't working is 1st consider whether you're doing a good enough job winning the grip fight. So like you said, if you can make sure that the other person can never get grips on you, I don't care if they're Andre Galvao or Gordon Ryan, they're not going to be able to do anything to you. Right. The grip fighting is that important. And so for many people, just putting a focus on that is a lot more important than any particular technique they might
1: do. And to what you just said, you've got to recognize a fight, understand where the fight is and what you need to be arguing about. And too many people will ignore the grip. Now, standing, nobody is ever going to, you're not going to try to double leg somebody without the proper grip. You're not going to try to do a Sotogari without the proper grip. Well, hell, people do all the time. But if you're a reasonable person, you understand that it's a vital part of a throw or takedown. But this same person will get on the ground and say, oh, okay, I think I'm going to try this sweep from De La Hiva without having any grips. Or I'm going to try to, you know, some sort of open guard sweep or submission. I don't have the grips, but let's just see what happens. Well, disaster is what's going to happen. So understand if you can define the fight and say, this is what I need to be spending all my time on. In our classes, we don't do a lot of open mat. And I'll I'll joke, I said, we don't do open mat. We're trying to get better here. And go to the other class if you want to do a lot of open mat. But I'll stop people sometimes and say, why did you just try to gloss over this? you're going to spend three minutes trying to recover a position because you didn't recognize that the fight was about maybe a grip or maybe the position of an elbow or a knee. And I'll take them back to that point because how is that person going to benefit from spending three more minutes doing something when they need to go back and train the recognition to show them, oh, this is the fatal moment here. This is the grip. And, and also I'll I'll have people, When you're about to pass or about to transition to improve your position, that's when we want to set up our grips. So if you're about to pass to, say you're doing a knee slice and you've already, you already have your knee on the mat and you're looking to come through, well, if you're in the gi, go ahead and set up when you still have that three quarter guard, they're going to be fighting like hell to keep you in the quarter guard as if that does anything for them. That's where they're going to be focused. Go ahead and set up your grips, set up a a baseball show or paper cutter, whatever you want to do, because they're not going to be paying attention to the grips. And that's what they should be paying attention to. And you can even flail your leg about to make them think that your leg is really important. They need to keep fighting for it, but they're fighting for the wrong thing. They're focusing on the wrong thing. So that's another thing I do with gripping is set your grips for where you want them to be for the position you're about to go to. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Any, you know, you talked about
0: kind of looking at things that that maybe are low hanging fruit here, things that would be uh, really beneficial for people to apply when it comes to stuff like grip fighting. And it might be a good idea to talk about that, because I know that when you say things like just win the grip fight, For a lot of people who are new, it might be tricky to get their head around what exactly that means. Any little pointers there for people who are just starting out in terms of how they can just be more effective when it comes to having good results come out of the grip fight?
1: So generally the the grip fight, if you're in what you might consider a defensive position, you want the inside position so you can work from the inside out. If you're in a more advantageous or dominant position, you still might want to win the inside position. but if you're like if you're on your feet and you're trying to throw somebody, you're going to try to grip them in a way to if you're gripping defensively, you're going to post a grip to keep them from rotating their their power side into you. and, and that's why Judo will start posting though if you're a right-handed player, you'll start posting your left hand first to keep them from rotating into you. But what are you trying to accomplish with your grip? If you're trying to throw somebody, you're going to rotate around their axis. If you're trying to, you know, snap them down, you're trying to tease out or you're trying to compromise their posture or their structure. And that's, again, if you don't know what you're doing, just think of alignment. And I'll tell people, said just go two if you want on the wrist. Do nothing else except grab the wrist and hang on to it. And that's only going to work for so long. But now, because they're going to be able to get it back. But now grab the wrist 2v1 and keep your posture upright and just walk that hand, walk that captured wrist into their hip pocket and see what they do. They they can't do anything. They really can't do anything because they've lost their lead side, their lead wrist. They can't do anything to you with that arm. They're not going to be able to do anything with the other arm. And that's some of the games we'll play. Do nothing else but just try to stick it into the pocket. Chase them all around the mat if you have to. Don't let them move that arm six inches away from and see what happens. And at some point, they're going to be so desperate to move that around or, or to move that away from their hip pocket that they're just going to stick it straight out. They will leave that arm dangling out for you, and that's when you can make a follow-up attack. That make sense. Absolutely. It reminds me of something my own instructor had
0: told me one time when I was expressing frustration that I couldn't move these big heavy dudes in my guard. And he said, look, if you can't find a technique that is going to work and is going to solve the problem, just get a two on one other arm and just never let them get good structure right just constantly be pulling and trying to move them just never let them get to that place where their base and their structure is settled you don't have to necessarily whip off the perfect arm bar from guard but if you can just continually be manipulating one of their arms with a good two-on-one that's always a good option it's very very hard for the other person to do anything effective to you if you've got good two-on-one control on their arm
1: Sounds like your instructor was in a bad marriage. <laughs> 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 you know, like, like close guard. And I ban close guard for my class for several reasons. But for a beginner, it's, there's too much surface area of your back on the mat to be able to do all the techniques well. And what happens when you get into open mat with close guard with new people? If you're the newer person or the less experienced, you're going to throw your legs around somebody and just bear hug them, and it's going to be a miserable five minutes. And and it's not going to be much better for the person on top because they don't know how to get out of that or deal with it. Or you have a new person who's you know got a blue belt that wants to kill him, and it's going to be the same thing. So that's why we'll go to a, Josh and I agree on a whole lot of stuff. When I was listening to his podcast, it's instead of. Of Closed Guard, we go to either Butterfly or Scissor. We'll go first to Scissor Guard because that's that's one guard you can use to, to mechanically disrupt their base. You don't have to move yourself. You don't have to do anything. You can use your legs to disrupt their base. But we want to go to Scissor Guard. That takes us to half, Knee Shield half, Butterfly half, Butterfly. And that's what we play. And as they stand up, we can get into X, Single X, DLR, things like that, but yeah, we don't do close guard for that reason. But it's one of those things. If you have to play close guard, just start to overhook the person and with your other arm, put a frame against the head and try to separate that arm from the head. That arm will start to come away from their body. and it starts to come away from their head, and then they become very inefficient. You don't have to know anything about jiu-jitsu to know that, oh, this person really doesn't like this. And then things are gonna start presenting themselves to you. Oh, okay, here's here's how I can enter into this triangle that I was never able to get. Or here's how I can get this arm for you for an arm bar. So it's I mean, it's kind of like an eco principle. It's task-focused instead of following the the recipe, but just start pulling stuff out. Yeah, yeah. I think you've described that as teasing out their structure.
0: And I just love that idea of if the person's in a good, solid structure their arms and legs are all in the right position, it's very hard to just bang off a technique on them. You kind of need to start pulling the threads loose. And usually that's going to mean you want to try to get one of their arms separated a bit from their body. Maybe their legs, depending on where they're standing or where they're positioned. Sometimes their head, even if it's within range. But if the person has good structure, one of the first things you need to do is start untying that knot and teasing it apart a little bit.
1: Yeah, we we played this morning with a leg. Even if you can't pull something out just to grab an ankle start walking them around a little bit because they're not going to like it they're not going to be happy and you can alternate between walking them around what are they going to do they're going to realize okay they're they're going to try to overcommit and attack you or they're going to try to stay in their ball and at which point you just start to put a little pressure on them and you're always going to put some type of pressure on them will alternate between trying to pull something out and then putting pressure on them yeah yeah awesome your models for leading edge is a is a great explanation of that and and something we'll use, not just leading edge, but if you're looking to exploit something or to get yourself in somewhere, hard weapons against soft targets. Use an elbow, use a forehead, use a knee, and just start to put pressure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, maybe this is related to your next point, but something else that you'd said in your bad marriage framework is don't escalate, just go there. And I'm guessing that in the context of a bad marriage, people can probably understand exactly what that means. But in the context of jujitsu, what does that look like? And what do you mean when you say, don't escalate,
1: just go there? So I want to threaten the most dangerous thing first. And our kind of our decision tree is, can I take the back? The first thing you want to do is check. Can I take the back and go threaten the back? So if you pass another thing that for a long time, Besides banning close guard, I ban side control. Side control is a great position, obviously, but so many times, it's a position that we get to because we concede, or that's the only thing we can get to. Instead, I have my class say, when you pass, when you get past the legs, you have to pass all the way to the back or to mount." And in some cases, knee on belly is a nice consolation position. And by the way, we can talk about knee on belly in a second, because people mess that up in training. but. If you're passing to the back, if you're threatening the most dangerous thing, they have to defend against the most dangerous thing. And they have to commit enough resources to defending the most threatening thing to make sure it gets done. And that's going to open up a lot of other opportunities for you. I mean, you know, if you have somebody that's trying to pass, if they're trying to get a knee belly, trying to get mount, you can feel them when they concede and decide that, okay, I'm okay with side control. Side control is good enough. They back their hips off. They start to settle their weight. You can feel them give up, right? You know that moment I'm, I'm talking about when they can't have what they want, so they go to side control. And is side control real scary? No, it's not. Not near as scary as having somebody on your back or, or having them in the mouth. You can deal with that. So that's what just going there is about. Go right for the back. Go right to stand up. Make them, you really get their attention, and they're going to have to defend it. It's like, I compare it a lot to, I always use learning to drive a car as an analogy. When you're learning to drive a car, as you start to veer off a little bit into another lane, what does somebody learn to drive? That Oh, shit, and they really jerk the wheel to get back. They overcorrect. And if you're attacking the most dangerous thing, they're usually going to overcorrect until they're seasoned enough that they're going to be patient and not do that, but they're still going to have to defend it. So don't, don't try to incrementally. I don't want to get this confused. If you're going to play incrementally, you want to incrementally go for the most dangerous thing, but don't go for a small thing and then another small thing and then another minor thing and have that add up. Yeah. Now that might be what you do against some folks because you try to get the danger saying, or the next most dangerous and you can't do it. And then you just want to do something to make some progress because you want to keep tempo, and that's another concept. It's from chess. You you always want to maintain tempo. No empty moves. If I move it, and it starts out in chess, if I move first, then you have to move to respond to my move. And as long as I'm still making moves that require you to respond, I have the tempo. As soon as I make the empty move that you don't really have to respond to or defend. You can gain the tempo now and and there's there's games and drills we can use for that stuff, too. But that's kind of a corollary to all this stuff. Yeah, I love that point.
0: That's actually a really good observation that sometimes you're going to have multiple options available that are all kind of they have the same risk profile for you as the person doing them but they might have a significantly different risk profile for the person receiving the technique. And I can think of some examples where this has happened to me, where someone has tried a technique and I just did not feel threatened at all. And what wound up happening is I basically was able to take the tempo away from that person because they were sort of busy doing something that I just wasn't really concerned about. Common example is when people try to cross-collar choke me from the guard. It's just, it's very hard to get a cross-collar choke on someone from the guard if they're good and experienced. What often happens is if people try that to me, I use that as an opportunity to to get up and start passing. But you compare that to something like a back take from guard. If I am sitting in someone's guard and they get a two-on-one on on my arm and they start getting around to my back – I have to drop whatever I was doing and deal with that right then and there, which puts me on the reactive. Whereas if it's something like a cross collar, as long as I've got decent posture, I can probably not be too concerned about that and keep playing the game I want to play. So I think that's an interesting idea that, hey, if, you know, if the risk to you is the same, you should probably choose the option that causes the most harm to your opponent to try to get them into that reactive mindset.
1: Yeah, it's it's like uh, doctors do with the differential diagnosis. You come in with a set of symptoms. They're going to rule out the stuff that's going to kill you first. That, that's the first thing they have to think about. Is this something that's going to kill this person immediately? And then they're going to start working their way down the list. It can't be the other way. Oh, is this, do they just have a cold? No, do they have the? And then they've left you untreated for a few weeks and, and you die of something that, that could have been treated. So, no, it, it's just a, a reverse, same thing as a differential diagnosis. Threaten them with the most dangerous thing, and require them to respond to it. They're either going to re- not respond to it, in, in which they're dead, or they do, and that gives you other opportunities. And and sometimes I'll tell people, "I would love to just start a match. If I could walk behind you and strangle you from behind, I would prefer it be done that way because now we can rest. I don't have to waste a lot of extra in it. But but you're not going to let me do that. But what happens? As I'm walking around behind you, you're having to change your base, you're having to come off of your game plan, and that's when you enter your grip fighting game. So just threatening the back is going to make this person change their orientation to open up cross collars, same side collars, a, a lot of stuff that they wouldn't normally do if you did the normal, okay, here, here's our agreement, here's how we're going to do jujitsu. Yeah,
0: yeah, Absolutely. Now, the number five thing that you've listed as uh, part of your bad marriage jujitsu framework here is don't concede a damn thing. <laughs> and, and I love that. I mean, probably something that anyone in a bad relationship can relate to, but tell me
1: more about what that means from a jujitsu standpoint. All right. So this is not just the old bastard stuff of, of don't give an Although although that, that is included in this. But the don't concede a damn thing is... I use this to illustrate the point. Uh, I don't think enough of a distinction is made between angular distance and linear distance. So when people talk about pressure versus speed and all that, just think of a, a pizza. If there's a, a small pizza and a large pizza, if you're on the crust and you have two people running around them at the same time, if they go all the way around, okay, the small and large, they've each gone 360 degrees around, Right. They've traveled the same angular distance, but linear distance is how far they've actually traveled in feet, meters, kilometers, and the linear distance is so much greater as you get even six inches outside, moving back six inches, moving back six more. All of a sudden, if you can keep yourself as the hub and you make this person travel around you, you're going to win. And I'll I'll tell people, say, I am old, fat, and slow. We can take the fastest person in here. And they're not going to be able to get around to my back because I'm going to do some things to push them out. I'm going to try to enlarge the circumference that they're going to have to travel to get where they want to go. And that's why cutting angles is so important. People who understand this stuff, the angular distance versus linear distance also explains why the game is completely different when you get above about 220 pounds. Because you can't just, if you're against kind of a normal side, and, and I'm 225, so I'm not trying to hate on our large folks here, but if you're trying, you see people jumping from one side to the other in side control, well, think about the linear distance. It's going to be the same angle, okay, the same amount, same angular distance if I'm jumping over a person who's 150 pounds, but if that person is 250 pounds, the linear distance that I'm traveling is so much more, and if I'm also 250 pounds, okay, I've got to try. That's pushing me out even farther. So that's why the game is is different, and that's why when Josh is talking on his podcast about featherweight or flyweight or or whatever the the weight that is hardly qualifies to be human weight, why the game changes. If they want to play absolute, that's why it's because of angular versus linear distance. So that's what don't concede a damn thing is not just about your alignment and not giving an inch. It's about understanding this on a very intimate level of how you can make this work for you. And you don't have to move. You don't have to do a damn thing. Nice. And I think that actually ties
0: into the next point you had here, which is if something needs to be done, then you do it. And you know, an example of that is often how it's easier to move yourself than your opponent. This reminds me of many times in Jiu-Jitsu where I I've had this battle. Josh, I know Josh Wentworth did bring this up on the episode that we talked to him about this, and he talked about how it we'll look against a bigger person. It's going to be very hard to move them. So sometimes you have to move yourself. You have to find a way to make things happen if your opponent is being stubborn. But maybe help me unpack this and let me know if you've got any suggestions on how to how to do that, how to make things happen when your
1: opponent is not being cooperative so this is one of those things and it's a great point and i'd, I'd started kind of brainstorming this and then i heard his episode I'm like damn i'm gonna say a bunch of the same stuff but that's really that's what good coaches do when i was talking to Mike, old bastard and I, I said why has your stuff resonated with so many people and, and we talked about that and said you know no offense at all but what you're saying this is just jujitsu And that's what's amazing when you think of the the best people, either interviewers or coaches or whatever, they take a simple concept that everybody knows that you've heard a hundred times, but they say it in a simple way that you have not considered before, and you just slap yourself on the head and say, oh, okay, yeah, don't give an inch." What does that mean? Really, don't give an inch. So the idea that you said it's easier to move yourself then move someone else. Everybody knows that. Everybody's been told that. But how many of them have internalized that and really play that way? They don't. And you'll see it in class all the time. People start to de-evolve and go back into their default games. And that's when I'll start. I don't teach it pure eco. I I use a lot of things I use from from coaching sport. And I'll stop the class and, and I'll make an illustration, ask some guiding questions, things like that. But say, did you try to move yourself or move them? Until that person internalizes it because they'll realize, oh, yeah, I was trying to move them again. And so much time is lost with suboptimal training because the students start to default. And you might have 10%, 15% time where people start to default and go back to the things, the habits that you've been trying to break. So we'll just stop the class right there rather than have this this leak. Of knowledge and improvement, we're going to stop it, correct it, and say, "Were you really trying to move yourself, or were you trying to move the person?" Yeah, oh, well, I thought I had him, so I tried to move just finish him on, and then and then we're back to to square one. so that's what that means.
0: Probably a good example of that is the just stand-up movement in jiu-jitsu. I mean, if you've ever tried to score a sweep against someone who's really good or experienced at jiu-jitsu, you know how hard it is. It is very hard to sweep a black belt from guard. It's very challenging because they're so experienced and their base is so good. And a lot of the time, just getting up to your own feet is going to be the path of least resistance, right? Because then you're not dependent on moving your opponent to make things happen. You're moving yourself. So I think that's a big part of why that resonates so much. And again, and, you know, we've talked about this a bit recently in jujitsu. It's very easy to get kind of sucked into just the intricate problem-solving nature of things, And sometimes that means we wind up choosing solutions that are way more complicated than they need to be. You know, you don't always need to land some fancy flower sweep to get on top. Sometimes you you just stand up, right? And you can achieve basically the same thing. So I think this is a good example of making things happen and taking initiative and making you do it if your opponent is not giving you what you need.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. So the next point you brought up is to force them to make their next choice.
1: And what you said is they'll go with it. So tell me what you mean by this here. So forcing them to their next choice, this is where I use a lot of analogies from from the weight room because most people have listed weights and they understand that. And this was before I started using alignment a lot. I'll joke. I'm I'm like the kind of the redneck Oceander in class sometimes. I'll, I'll just say stupid crap that wouldn't make sense to a lot of the country maybe, but perfect sense in my class so forcing them to their next choice a lot of it is alignment you know you're you're doing the other things we talked about in bad marriage you're preventing them from doing the stuff they want but if if somebody is trying to to retain their guard and you'll see people just mash into them trying to force through the frames which makes no sense at all okay we'll stop them right there what is that movement Okay, that's a leg press. That's a very strong movement, a leg press or a squat. Why would you want to force your way through a leg press? So instead, we're going to turn their frames into our levers. And they'll say we, we take them off the leg press machine, put them on the hip abductor machine where you're kind of moving your knees out and then moving your knees back in, like the Thigh Master, if you remember that thing. You're preventing them from being able to use their major muscle groups their glutes, quads, hamstrings, and you're forcing them to try to fight you with their hip flexors or their hip their hip abductors, which are very weak. And we do that in the top when we're trying to pin people. Too many people will try to power through the plank position or somebody trying to bench press. Being bench press is great. And if you have, like Josh was talking about, you're not going to be able to pin somebody that's trying to bench press you if you're trying to force your way through the bench press. Then instead, start to ride that a little bit. And as soon as they start to extend, now they've given you a very long crowbar to use against them. Take them off the bench press and just don't push their arms, but just wash your weight up and place their arms over their head. And you've taken them off the bench press and put them all over the pullover machine. Yeah, yeah. No, that's another thing that I liked about kind of like Mike's episode about the old bastard stuff. Josh's episode about what to do as a smaller person. That's, that's great for everybody. Now, not the be faster stuff. I, that's not going to work for me, but I'm almost 49 years old. And even though I have decent size and strength within the last year or two, I've really seen a decline in, in speed and quickness. So I'm having to play the smaller game and I always looked at martial arts. It's, this is supposed to be about efficiency. Right. So. I remember hearing about, oh, women's self-defense class, come learn if you're look, if there's a class where you can be one hundred twenty five pounds and a lot weaker than your attacker, that's a class I want to go to, mm-hmm. because w- what's the opposite of that? I want to go take a class to where I'm really going to have to fight with somebody. Hell no. I want to take the easy way that that's what the Jew is in jujitsu. OK, it's it's not. Gentle arts doesn't mean it's easy on the body. It means suppleness. We're looking for the easy path here. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a great example you
0: brought up about not trying to run into a strong frame. This is where I think a lot of people get stuck when they're trying to get past something like knee shield half guard. If you've got someone's leg and their shin facing you directly, that's a very strong frame. You're not going to be able to just power through it no matter how big or strong you are. And so you've got to find a way around it. You've got to cut an angle or like you said, change that frame into a lever, grab that leg and control it somehow. Just take it out of that position where it's strong and turn it into something weak. Just way too easy to try to ram your head through something that isn't going to work. And that's a very common beginner mistake as well.
1: And you don't have to know anything about jiu-jitsu to do that, do you? you? If somebody has you in their knee shield half guard, they have this frame against you. Why are you pushing against it? You don't have to know what you're doing to know that this person, it's really important to this person that they have this frame up that you can't get past. So you can tease it a bit. You can start to push into it and see how they're going to react. And then you're going to be able to take that, turn that frame into your lever. But this is where I like a lot of when the pewter's mirroring principle stuff is you show them force in one direction, Let them start to defend that. And then you're starting to go the other, which is just a a sport concept. If you're learning basketball or soccer or anything, if I want to go left, the first thing I'm going to do is is look them right. Mm -hmm. Make them think I'm going to go right before I go left. Don't ever do the first. Don't do what you want to do the very first time. You've got to make an earnest feint. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I love what you said there, too, about how, look, if you don't know exactly why your opponent is trying to do something that's okay. As long as you recognize that this is something they want. So don't give it to them. This is an important lesson when you're in there with someone who has a really exotic or novel game and they're doing things that you just haven't seen before. Or alternately, maybe there's just a a knowledge disadvantage. They're more experienced than you. You don't always need to know exactly what they're trying to do. Obviously it's preferable if you do, But sometimes you don't however you can at least make the decision to not give them what they want (laughs) and if you can do that you can normally shut down a lot of their game even if you don't know exactly what it is that they're trying to do this is something rob bernacki has talked about when he talks about the advantages of, of thinking conceptually is he said that when he is in there with people who are much more experienced and better athletes than him they might be entering into sequences that he just simply doesn't know or understand But by trying to focus on at least keeping his own alignment, he can prevent them from doing those things, even if he doesn't know exactly what they are.
1: Yeah, well, I'll bring up Finding Nemo on this one. It's, you know, when Marlon's teaching his kid, they're hanging out in the sea and then we go out, danger, we go back in. We go out, we come back in. If you don't know what you're seeing, if, if it's novel or if it's different, if you don't understand it, go back to the point in time to where you're comfortable. You have your alignment. I don't care what exotic guards you come at come at me with if I have my base posture structure intact, because they're not going to be able to do anything. And the more novel it is, just start to rely on your defense, and then they're going to have to come out of that novel position and try to comfort they're going to have to hang their structure out or their they're going to have to give up something. because a lot of the times when people get beat by novelty, it's because they allow themselves to become unraveled and this person tangles them up. And, and that's a, really a training pet peeve that I see when if more experienced belts are working with white belts, well, you don't you don't need to do lasso guard on the trial class guy because then you're beating them with novelty. You're, you're not beating with jiu-jitsu. I always try to encourage my upper belts to meet whatever skill set this person has or you think they have, playing with their own skill set maybe be just a little bit better, but you don't need to use more tools. Let's agree that we're going to use the same number of tools or the same tool bag and we're going to have, we're going to have our match that way. And that's, that's a way for both people to learn. That's actually a really great suggestion. If you've got the trial person
0: in class trying jujitsu for the first time and they're just learning about the guard for the first time ever, does it really make sense for you to be doing, you know, modern crab ride back takes on these people. Like what does that achieve, right? It you might make you feel good for a second, but you're not getting any better. They're not really learning anything. You're just confusing them more. So I like that idea of the more experienced person meeting them on their level and helping them work the stuff that they're already focused on.
1: Yeah. And that helps the because you could say, well, what does the what does a more experienced person get out of it? Well, one of the concepts is of judo, the judikoye, the mutual benefit and welfare. Maximum efficiency, mutual benefit, and welfare. You can work with anybody. You can work with a kid. Okay, If I'm working with a kid in in his first class, am I going to get anything out of it to improve my judo game? No, but I may have had to figure out a way to explain something or consider a problem in a way that I hadn't considered it before. And that way, I've improved myself. So there's always things to do. And if you're meeting on a level playing field, Okay, you might be trying to use somebody's tool set that's not your best tool set. It's not not your A game. And that's one reason I don't compete anymore out of several reasons. But when I was competing, I always had to be worried about my game. And when I started transitioning to teaching, now I need to learn everybody else's game. I I need to know the game of the 145-pounder or 175-pounder. I can't do it all that well, but I need to know the things that they can do. Yeah. And in that way, everybody's going to benefit. Now, the next point you brought
0: up here, and this now, if there's a definitive bad marriage concept here, it's this one. And so I'm very happy to be talking about this. Go for the cut. <laughs> How do you do the thing that's going to hurt your opponent and make them suffer? Tell me about this one. I'm curious.
1: Okay. Go for the cut is you're going to find, I, I heard this from soccer coach, but you pick out the weak points or the points you've exploited before. Now. Again, this whole podcast is is like, this is Spinal tap, all right? It's all just kind of made up stuff, but they're descriptive for principles that are helpful. So going for the cut is, you'll see boxers, if somebody is, you open up a cut on somebody in the third round, well, that fighter's not going to say, oh, you know, this dude's already cut up. I'm going to, he's got a cut on his right side. I'm going to start working on his left. No, you just start pounding that cut. You know what hurts them, you know what they have problems with, so you're going to start to exploit that. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about punking out and like we just talked about, well, hey, they don't know, trial class guy doesn't know lasso guard, I'm going to do that. But experienced pers- people, when you're training with them, you'll see people too often, they just want to use your A game or B game, and that's not developing. The person who wins with A and B game all the time in class is not developing as much as the person who's having to reach deep into the bag and go to CD and E-game. So if you've exposed something, especially on somebody that's experienced, if you've exposed it, just go for it every time and force them to shore it up, and that's going to be better for you. Making your training partners, helping elevate their jujitsu game is going to elevate your jujitsu jitsu game because now you're being able to train better people. Mm-hmm. But that's what going for the cut is. Find something, exploit it, and you exploit it mercilessly until they fix it. Now, from a training standpoint, that doesn't mean, okay, in a five-minute round, he doesn't defend the Kimura very well. That doesn't mean you need a Kimura, hit that thing ten times in a five-minute round. You hit it once and say, dude, you really need to work on that. And then you can proceed with whatever you're doing. But that's what going for the cut is. Got it. Got it. Now, what about control over scoring?
0: This is something else that you've talked about here. And this, if if you mean it just literally, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this philosophy because I hear people talk about the importance of scoring and, and the rule set so often here, but maybe I'm misunderstanding. Tell me what you mean when you say control over scoring.
1: Well, so there's a lot of people smarter than I am that talk about the the scoring system. and But I've, I like Craig Jones' take on this, that. The scoring systems are somewhat antiquated based on, you know, the original purpose of jiu-jitsu, and if you look at where people are winning fights in MMA, and I know we're not MMA, but they're not trying to pass to side and then knee on belly and then mat and all that stuff. They're perfectly content to stay in half. So one of the things we'll do is control over scoring is there's a lot of time. I mean, think how many people will pass to mat and then lose mat. It's not a great position for a lot of people. So. Yeah. One answer is you need to fix your mount. That's true. But another one is we don't need to go to mount right away. So we just finished a long unit and and all, all my units are, are between three and eight weeks in class. And that's probably a whole other episode or something, but I don't do, you know, do something for a week and then we'll come back to it in six months. So we use long units on this stuff and all of it emphasized I want to control this person. I don't want to cede control just to get a cheap score because they they connect to the ground with their legs. Anything they do, all their escapes are going to be based on their connections to the ground. And most of those connections, the strongest connections, are going to be with their legs. So we're either going to shell the legs, we're going to ride, we're going to splay them, split them, just control them, sit on the legs, and we want to be heavy, make it very difficult for them and it starts to tire them out a lot of people will try to move right to a mount and okay now you're in mount but they have their they have use of their arms they have use of their hips one of our concepts is stay out of no man's land the area between navel and nipple if you're in no man's land they can affect you with their hips and their shoulders and arms so we want to be below the navel or above the nipple so if If we're trying to control legs and move up to mount, there's no reason to move right up to mount. We want to hold that control position, and we want to get arms that way. We're going to, again, tease out their structure, get an arm. We can pummel. We can grip fight, whatever. Control an arm. Control the head. And once we have control over something, now we're going to move up. That's that's getting our grips, you know, getting the grips we want in the next position before we move there. And your results are going to be a lot better. And if you don't have exactly what you need, go back to that, regress back to that control position. Because a control position where you have their legs disconnected from the mat is a lot better than a scoring position where you don't have shit. Because what's going to happen is you're going to get reversed, you're going to get swept, or maybe even submitted because, hey, you've scored some points, but you don't have anything You don't have any control over this person. Right,
0: right, right. Got it. Makes sense. And I think that's just generally good advice across the board. I mean, yes, there's always that situation where you're in a competition and you got 10 seconds left on the clock to come from behind. But other than that, generally speaking, I always prefer emphasizing holding control and focusing on control. I've said on the podcast now, one of the big changes from my own game as I've gotten older and more experienced has been. Focusing less on definitive submission hunting, which comes with risk because you can lose the position and more on just keeping control at all times and never abandoning it. I mean, that is very much an old bastard jiu-jitsu principle, but I think it's just generally good advice. And it's the reason you always hear people say things like position over submission.
1: Yeah, we play. So my class and and we can play this way in my club, Red River Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I teach the 530 AM class three days a week. And we have, you know, noon and evening classes and all that. Most of the folks in my part, as you, as you'd guess, are a bit older and they're not terribly interested in competition, but all of them have competed in something in, in life. And they're typically pretty intelligent people. They're very thoughtful. So this sort of approach really resonates with them because they're not, they don't have to worry about trying to score points. They just want to enjoy their match and they're going to enjoy it a lot more. If they're controlling these people, and that's something especially for, for lighter players, okay, especially our females in there, if they can shelve legs and sit on the legs. I have a couple that a couple of our women have this real annoying habit of stacking ankles sideways on top of each other, Ooh. and it hurts like hell. And they're just going to sit there and, and grind them and say, okay, if, if you don't like it, you can sit up and try to reach for me, and then they're going to make you pay. But, you know, you had mentioned like, like the old bastard stuff, you know, the, the principle stands if you're not in a rush and you're trying to control at all times and you don't do anything where you ever see that control and you just start to use, you use your pressure and you move up and you move up and you move up. I mean, there's so many fun examples to use. Well, if you remember the Friday the 13th franchise. Jason, did he ever run after anybody? No, man. He walks slowly and deliberately. Son of a bitch walked for 12 movies, even in space. He (laughs) walks on people in space. He always gets his people. And we'll tell him, just get off the interstate. Quit worrying about your A game. Get off the interstate. Get on the access roads. Go slow. Don't jump on every submission that you know. Don't jump on your A game or your B game. Okay? Pass those up. Oh, I could get a come Fine. Don't. Slow down. And you're going to see, oh, God, there's an arm book. There's a triangle. There's a toe hole. This person will be, it's like they're dying to be submitted, or passed, or swept. They're giving you so much if you pay attention. And you do those things by just using the principles we talked about. Make sure your defense is shored up, your alignment's good, you're gripping properly, you're not giving a damn thing. And they're just going to, if you pay attention, they're going to tell you how they want to be defeated.
0: Awesome. Amazing, man. Now, you also brought this up earlier briefly, but I want to expand on it a little bit. And I know that this is a concept that you derive from other sports, but you talked about no empty attacks. Maybe tell me a little bit more about what is meant by that. Let's go into that one a little bit more, because I think it's a very important idea.
1: So we already talked about tempo, but it's not just about tempo. If you're going to do something... You, you ought to have a reason to do it. And and I see a lot of times when, when people are practicing combos, they do it very poorly, whether it's judo, jiu-jitsu, wrestling. They'll just throw this false attack on the front end and then try to do the second part of the technique. And that's not the way to do it, because what happens is the person's not reacting the first time, so the second one's not going to work. If you're attacking in combat and this was an interesting thing we did. See, I, I had a, a, a judo program at one point for at-risk youth. It was a free program we did, and the guy was teaching with us. today. Hey, let's try to say, hey, these kids didn't know anything about judo, so we told them, you can only attack in combination. And damn, it made a huge difference because people weren't trying to just get off their primary throw. They tried to earnestly get the first throw, and that would lead into a combination and they started hitting their second throw or their third throw. But you see in, in boxing, nobody's going to go out and just throw a haymaker and land it the first time. So that's an empty attack is when people aren't throwing a sincere attack. And the other thing people need to understand is you don't have to fully execute a technique for it to be effective. I don't, and unless it's somebody that's a lot smaller, a lot less experienced, I don't submit people from close guard. One, because I don't even like to be in it but i'm just not built for it it's not really my thing but my close guard is very effective because i can earnestly try to attack something and it's going to make them respond in a way to where it opens up the next thing and then when you open up the next thing you attack that and then it's just going to be more and more open the soccer term for it if you watch any soccer or basketball when they show replays, when a goal is scored, usually that fatal moment was three or four seconds before it was scored. And like in soccer, the first person is going to pressure the ball. The second person away, the next pass is going to, is going to cover. Okay, cover that route, cover the person that they get. Everybody else is going to balance, to balance out the defense. And you'll see it, it's just like a boxing match or soccer or basketball. All the passes around, the jabs, the footwork, the movement, is to see what can I do to create some kind of unbalance in the defense. And when the defense gets unbalanced, that's when you step in and exploit it. And then it's just a chain reaction for the other person. One little area is unbalanced, and when that gets exploited, everything's going to have to shift over, and you're just going to follow it. And that's what it is. I love that idea. That's actually a a really, really
0: cool point about how even if a technique doesn't succeed the way you intended, that doesn't mean it's useless because a lot of the time, the first attack in a chain, it's not going to work against a good person because they expect it But they're going to have to move and they're going to have to respond. And by doing that, you create little openings that you can then exploit. So what you often see is when a technique does work against a good person, it's usually two, three, four, five techniques into the chain. It's not the first one. So that's a really cool idea to actually tell people they can't attack with individual moves. They have to use sequences. I might steal that. I really like that thought. Excellent. All right. Well, Gant, thanks so much for coming by here. We talked about a lot. Was there
1: anything you wanted to discuss or share today that we didn't get into yet? Oh, heck, there's a lot of things we could talk about. But the I think, like I mentioned at first, this is about 30 years into the martial arts for me, and as you go on, you realize that there's a lot more similarities than differences. And whether you're a coach or student, try to find something in the person's background. To make it applicable to their jiu jitsu journey, I mean your former athletes are going to have this large movement vocabulary that you can draw on, so there's there's no need to try to replace that you 're just adding some new things, make it relevant for them. and if it 's somebody that's new, okay, introduce that through these games and implicit learning. You can make this accessible for everybody, and you can you can bring somebody up to speed a lot faster then I guess it's traditionally thought possible. And this idea that it takes 10 or 12 years to make a black belt is, um, I think these coaches ought to, to reevaluate what's possible. And what you're doing and some other folks are doing, hopefully that's going to, that movement will get more momentum and we can recognize some good coaches and, and get people up to speed faster. Thanks, man. Well, I appreciate it greatly,
0: and I agree with you entirely. I've never understood why in jujitsu jitsu so many coaches brag about how long it takes them to produce black belts. I don't know if that makes them feel good or not, but it really doesn't give me confidence they're an amazing coach. I can't imagine a university bragging that it takes their students 12 years to complete a degree instead of four. That seems like why? an odd flex, <laughs> but... Is what it is, I guess. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Gant. I really appreciate it. Hey, I got a question. If people want to talk to you or if they got drunk and got arrested for taking their clothes off and they need a lawyer in Texas to help bail them out,
1: how do they go about reaching out to you? The best way to get a hold of me. I am not really active at all on social media. I have an Instagram and um, I guess best way if you need to get me is is cosoto bjj at gmail.com. K-O-S-O-T-O-B-J-J at Gmail. That's really about it. Or just find me on the Discord.
0: appreciated, man. Well, that leads into my stuff. I mean, as always, I'll put all of those links in the show notes, but if anyone wants to check out the full slate of everything we make, just go to bjjmentalmodels.com. There's as of now, 235 episodes on there. That's a ton of evergreen educational content for you to consume for free. There's also the awesome newsletter, which is also free. And of course, if you want to join premium, get in the discord, talk to us, get direct coaching from our review team, get access to our full course library. You can get all the details there as well so everything's on bjjmentalmodels.com but thanks a lot gant really appreciate it man and it was great to finally connect and have this chat i think people are going to like it
1: yes sir steve good to chat with you bud thanks man and thanks to the listeners too take care and we'll talk to you soon